Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. This episode was sponsored by the PVS Studio team. It promotes static code analysis methodology in general and its PVS Studio tools in particular. Static code analyzers allow you to find bugs in source code at the development stage. This helps to reduce the price of fixing them. PVS Studio performs code analysis and issues warnings on the fragments of code with a high probability of having bugs and potential vulnerabilities in them. The tool supports C, C++, C Sharp, and Java, and it can work with Visual C++, GCC, Clang compilers, and some of those used for embedded systems. The analyzer works on Windows, Linux, and macOS. PVS Studio can both be used as a standalone tool and integrated with Visual Studio, IntelliJ IDEA, SonarCube, and so forth. In the show notes, you can find links to the PVS Studio website and the article, Technologies Used in the PVS Studio Code Analyzer for Finding Bugs and Potential Vulnerabilities. The Dead Sea is dead for a reason. Dead Sea development environments are usually toxic to your career, destructive to your motivation, and terribly ineffective. In this episode, we're going to talk about how organizations end up with the Dead Sea effect and some ways to fix it. The Dead Sea effect is extremely destructive to productivity and hard to get rid of. However, it's got to go if you're ever going to be successful. So before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I turned 40 today. Happy birthday. Yeah. So it's been a weird day. This is the hottest I can remember it being on my birthday. Yep. Like I got in the car and it registered, I think, 102, Mm -hmm. which is pretty ridiculous this time of year. It's supposed to cool off this weekend. I had a really weird thing happen to me today, and I didn't realize that this was a problem, but I have a keyboard tray now, and it wasn't locked in place like it needed to be. And so I bumped it, and it dumped everything in the floor. Oh! (laughs) And I was just, like, looking at it. And, of course, at the same time, like, I had some Cherries Garcia, like, sitting in the freezer for today. And I'm just like, Uh you know what? I'm not even going to mess with it right now. (laughs) (laughs) I ate a pint of cherries Garcia I was like all right, now I feel like fixing this stupid thing that was just completely random but boy I tell you what talk about something that wakes you up oh yeah so yeah don't really have a whole lot of uh, other news I mean I've just been working like a dog I got another chapter done and it's all the way out to Simple Programmers website I've got one almost done to go into the editorial pipeline now yeah the book you know I'll have chapter 6 out of 9 done Tonight, probably. Hey, send me the link to that so I can put it on the website. Okay. I can do that. So uh, speaking of ice cream, I could really use some. And it has been a hectic week. My grandmother, they took her to the hospital middle of last week. And then uh, this past Saturday, they took her into hospice. So my girlfriend, hi, Amanda, and I drove up to West Virginia that Saturday night. We got to the hospice around 4 a.m., stayed there until my sister arrived around 10 Sunday morning, then went and got a few hours of sleep in the hotel room that my sister had. Went back later that afternoon. I was able to speak with my grandmother that evening. She was lucid. She asked for me. We talked. She asked, who's that girl with BJ? (laughs) Referring to my girlfriend. And uh, then uh, she even made a few jokes. So that was good. But uh That was the last time that uh, I saw her awake. The rest of the time I was up there, she was just uh, asleep. But uh, it was actually my week to write this episode. And so big thanks to Will for on his birthday week writing an episode because I was, you know, dealing with family stuff. So everybody give him. I got a good bottle of scotch and got some uh, loud music. Like I was like listening to Sabaton on a loop. Just just completely torched it. (laughs) Like, Like two hours it was done. So it's no big deal. Yeah, so everybody, big round of applause to Will for stepping up, um, even when he didn't have to, because we could have canceled, and uh, that would have stressed me out more, to be honest, because we would have been behind a week. So Now, in happier news, I'm going to be the primary videographer at church this coming Sunday. 
it's the church's anniversary. So that's a really big honor and a lot of trust they're putting in me. There's a lot of stuff going on that day. It's really exciting. Kind of cool. I was talking to our media lead and she was telling me about everything that I'm going to be doing. It's just, it's really exciting. Also, I'm still enjoying Discreet. A couple of the guys from class want to get together and study now. So that's cool. I actually have to do a lab assignment in C++ this evening after we record. I had planned to work on that over the weekend, but obviously I was traveling. But uh, that kind of leads us into our book in Book Club. So the next few chapters of Algorithms to Live by the Computer Science of Human Decisions talk about overfitting, relaxation, and randomness. Chapter 7 starts off talking about Darwin and Benjamin Franklin creating pro and con lists. It then goes into why you want to avoid too much complexity in your designs. The idea being that more data doesn't always lead to a better prediction. Also, complex data models don't always lead to the best predictions. And chapter eight starts off with the story of a PhD chemical engineering student who's also planning her wedding and how she found a correlation between seating arrangements at her wedding and amino acid pairings. She found that even with the fast computers at Princeton, she couldn't calculate the best solution. The chapter goes on to discuss optimization and the idea of relaxing constraints to allow for a solution, though maybe not the best overall solution, it gets you a solution. Then chapter nine talks about randomness. It starts with sampling and then goes into randomized algorithms. Really interesting book and comparison to real life. And there's a link to that in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an email from Jacob Danner saying, hey, BJ and Will, I just wanted to say thanks for episode 198. That's the positioning yourself for advancement episode and all the advice and tips you gave. Positioning and defining the value I bring to my company led to a really worthwhile and successful discussion with my boss. I work remotely and listening to you guys while I work makes me feel like I have some really knowledgeable office mates. Thanks for all you do, Jacob D. Jacob, that's really great that you were able to have a good discussion with your boss. Thank you for that feedback. It tells us that what we're doing is the right thing. A lot of times these episodes come from situations where we found ourselves or our friends have told us about. So send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com with your contact information because we've got a Complete Developer Water Bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Some of the worst experiences that you will have in your development career will occur at places where the Dead Sea effect is a major problem. It's not just that you're going to be surrounded by less skilled developers who can't work efficiently, but any efforts to improve the situation will also be stopped cold. Worse still, if you stay in such a place, you'll hurt your career for years afterward. It's also an extremely frustrating environment, which can often lead you to being cynical and eventually apathetic. After a while... If you stay there long enough, you'll either burn out or you'll become a Dead Sea developer yourself. While this all sounds like bad news, there is a silver lining to this particular storm of mediocre clouds. Such environments can be fixed provided you have management's help or if they aren't paying particular attention. In this episode, we're going to go through the things that you should be doing to try and fix a Dead Sea environment if you find yourself in one. A word of warning, though, before we start, if you find yourself consistently blocked on being able to fix these issues, you're probably better off going somewhere else. Dead Sea environments are a dime a dozen. Developers who are willing to take on the pain of fixing them are extremely rare. These practices will only work if you are able to do enough of them to make a difference. Yeah, and if you're allowed to start some of these practices, don't try to do it all at once. In the same way that the Dead Sea effect appeared slowly over time, it cannot be gotten rid of all at once. It's a slow process that snowballs over time. 
We're going to start off with a discussion on the Dead Sea Effect and how it happens. And then we're going to get into how to mitigate it, both from an organizational level and from an individual performance level. Starting off, understanding the Dead Sea Effect. What is it? Basically, it's a human resources anti-pattern. Yeah, HR has them too. (laughs) Basically, the Dead Sea Effect occurs when the managerial practices of a team result in the competent members leaving for greener pastures while the less competent remain behind. So basically the idea here is that your team, if you're not in a Dead Sea Effect situation and you're not like hyper-competitive, always getting the best, it should resemble the market that you're hiring from Mm -hmm. as far as your percentage of good developers and your percentage of less competent developers. In a Dead Sea Effect situation, you're getting more of the less competent developers because you're driving off the other kind. Yeah. I have seen places that had this and people in management had come in and were trying to fix it. Yeah, it's a really interesting problem. I have worked on fixing it at places and I think it's something I would like to do more of, Yeah, to be honest, because it's a really interesting problem if you're sadistic enough to want that problem. Mm-hmm. The metaphor here is built around the idea of how hyper saline lakes form. So the water evaporates and the salt remains, eventually killing everything in the lake, like the Dead Sea, which is between what, Israel and Jordan? I believe so, yeah. And the Jordan River, the Jordan River empties out into it and then it's hot there. So the water evaporates off and all the salt and other minerals stay there. So it's eight times as salty as the ocean is. Right. Some of the characteristics of Dead Sea organization include an extreme fixation on old approaches, old technology, and the way we've always done it. Yeah, that last one is the real bad one, right? There's old tech that works, and you could even do new things. But if they're fixated on, okay, here's how we did it 15 years ago, and we haven't learned anything since then, that's probably a sign. Mm -hmm. So I've seen things where people are like, well, you know, I don't want a bunch of functions calling other functions because that makes it hard to debug, which I get. But at the same time, it's like this puts hooks in for testing. We don't care about that. Mm -hmm. That's a Dead Sea organization. So have you ever seen someone go from being like right on the edge of a Dead Sea developer to not? Yeah, major life changes do that. I have talked to someone at a conference, I believe it was, or a local user group. I don't remember exactly where I talked to her, but she was talking about how changes in the organization. She's like, she didn't realize just how complacent she had gotten until they got a manager in there that was like shaking things up and it was either move or get left behind. Yeah. And she was like, I just didn't realize I had become that way. It's really easy to do because you get comfortable and you got a life outside of work, Mm -hmm. but it'll kill your career. That's just kind of the way that it goes. Another thing is the team no longer learns new things. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things I love about my job is they're always pushing us to learn new stuff. Yeah, it's handy when you work somewhere like that. The position I'm in is more like learn as you need it, Mm -hmm. which is still better, right? Because instead of like trying to hammer something into a mold that doesn't fit anymore, it still works. But yeah, if your team just doesn't learn anything new, that's probably a really bad sign. Another one is high amounts of technical debt and a tendency to pile it higher rather than addressing it. Mm -hmm. I've seen that at places back when I was doing more consulting before I went back to school. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's a pretty good chunk of the organizations out there, to be 100% honest. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about how the Dead Sea Effect happens. Yeah, and usually it's a function of one or more of the four factors that we're going to talk about. The first one is cash flow problems. Now, people in tech like to think that the finances don't matter. Finances are everything. Cash flow problems in particular mean a lack of money for training a lack of money for new technology, and you don't have enough to give raises to actually keep your good employees. Mm -hmm. Next is the sunk cost fallacy in management, basically meaning that they're not experimenting with new things while it's cheap to do so. Eventually, there are no small things to try because the world has completely moved on. So you weren't playing around with .NET when it came out, Still building, you know, ASP Classic. Good old Interdev. Now the world is moving into .NET Core. 
And it's a big, ugly jump, right? Because it's not only, okay, I have to deal with MVC, but I have to deal with dependency injection. I have to deal with Entity Framework. I have to deal with, oh, hey, JavaScript doesn't suck now. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's all these things that are all in the mix, and I've got to do them all at the same time instead of slowly acclimating. Yeah. And my entire team, if I want to do it, I have to drag them with me. And speaking of your team, the next one is toxic team dynamics that drive off better developers while the ones that stick around just get bitter. What that means is that even if you get better devs, you can't keep them. Yeah, it's funny that people with options don't stay in bad situations. That's the bane of every bad organization out there is you just, you can't keep people. It's hard to keep people anyway, even if you have a good org. But if it's terrible Mm -hmm. and you've got things like people have certain areas that are their part of the system and they can shut everybody down who tries to fix it or tries to touch anything, new blood isn't coming in. It's interesting. We had a conversation about that not long ago where I work on, we've got some areas that it's not because people have been like held out. It's just, they're so old that only a few people left know about them. Yeah. And it's like, until we get in there and update these areas, we need to train some other people on them in case, you know, someone wins the lottery. Yeah. Or gets hit by a bus or both. That would be tragic. You know, like they get hit by a bus, they fall down, they pick up a lottery ticket, they're multimillionaire, they figure, hey, that was a sign. <laughs> you know, like I've been in organizations where I legitimately think that that could actually happen. Uh-huh. And they would be completely unprepared for that. You've seen my luck. Yeah, that's exactly like your luck, actually. Yeah. And finally, the fourth one, mass firings or situations where a mass exodus occurs can mean that expertise leaves the building. The remaining employees stick with what works because they don't have time for anything else. Yeah, or it's almost like a cargo call thing. It's like you call these functions in this order and you don't vary from that because bad things happen and we haven't had time to look at it and nobody knows what actually was going on under the hood. I've seen this happen not at a really high level, but more at, uh, I've seen it where they hired a bunch of junior developers right around the same time. And so they aged out of, but they experienced out of being junior developers. And so they were looking to move up. And they couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't in the company. So they all left at the same time. Yep. And it wasn't so much that expertise was lost, it was time training. Whereas if they had lost one junior developer, they could have had the others help the new one as they came along, but then they had to train three whole new junior developers within the time span of like three or four months. Which doesn't happen. And so they get something that works and they stick with it. Right. And then 10 years later, they're a senior dev and they don't change their approach because they got burned every time they did. Yep. So... Here's the beginnings of this is that there is really not a whole lot of point in blaming people on this. Like there's people that cause this situation straight up, but there's no point in blaming them, at least not yet, because you still got to fix it. Mm -hmm. And these dynamics tend to develop very slowly over time and they're hard to notice. So like if you're running a team that does a complicated product and you got a lot of people in the mix, it's really easy to miss all this stuff. A lot of these are the result of short-term compromises becoming permanent. These compromises may have been necessary and it may have been harder than expected to fix them afterwards. Yeah, it's very rare for a developer to be able to do something on short notice that's really complex to fix a major problem that doesn't paint you into a corner later, Mm -hmm. especially on a consistent basis. Like developers that can do that, they're not cheap. And if you're in this situation, you probably don't have any of those people. And most likely can't afford one. Now, developers get paid a lot. And because of the high salaries in development, cash flow issues can develop that will completely destroy your team, even if the cash flow problems don't originate there, because they're going to be the biggest target on the books as like, here, we got to cut expenses. This guy's getting paid a lot. Cut him. Yeah. And a lot of times they don't look at how much that person is producing. Or they look at, hey, this person isn't really producing a lot. What they don't see is yeah, may spend 10 hours writing one line of code, but that one line of code is better than what three developers could spend 12 hours each on. Yeah, or they're mentoring those other developers. There's that too. Or they're troubleshooting other systems. Like measuring developers is really hard anyway, Mm -hmm. and most companies really just don't do a good job of it. So a lot of this stuff comes down to the organizational level, which is the next thing that we're going to talk about. 
So the next thing to talk about here is how you start actually mitigating the Dead Sea effect so you can get rid of it. And this starts at the organizational level. First off, you want to look at training your existing staff. Yeah, and the point here is to get the staff back into a routine of learning new things. And there's a reason we start with this first, and it's that it can take a while to have a useful impact. And a lot of people are probably fairly comfortable with the way things are, even if it's dysfunctional. And so it's going to take a bit for this to kind of start kicking in and actually mattering. The other reason is that this is a good time to probe to see if management is even receptive to fixing the problem. Yeah, so I've had managers before where you go, hey, we need to train the team on newer tech. And they go, well, we'll train you. you know, we'll pay for training once we see results. It's like you're not going to see results when we're using 15-year-old tech. No. Training improvements can often be done without involving as much of the command structure in the organization. And this helps get around them if they aren't a problem. Yeah, so for instance, you do like a lunch and learn. You know, we discussed that on one of our episodes. I forget where, um, but there'll be a link to that in the show notes. But lunch and learns are basically free or they're you know, cheap enough that they don't require executive level permissions to do, right? Like you can buy lunch for the team on a manager's budget versus, you know, having to get the CFO or the CIO involved. Mm-hmm. If it is free or very cheap and of benefit to the team, having some team training can often produce results that can get management to listen to you. Now, one of the great things you can do here is look at conferences, local conferences and stuff like that. Send one or two people to it. And what I do is I get paid to go to conferences, as in it's considered training for me, because then I go to specific things I'm asked to see, and they don't load up my entire schedule. I'm allowed to go to sessions I want to go to as well. But I go to the sessions that I'm specifically asked to go to, and then I come back and do a lunch and learn. So you can kind of double up on it. And the nice thing about it is that uh, because I speak, I don't usually have to pay for the conference. So my work doesn't have to pay for it. And they get the benefit. All they do is just pay me my regular salary for being there so I don't have to take vacation days. Yeah. And this can be worked out where it's pretty cheap, really. Yeah. Even if you don't speak or get to go to the conference for free, there's a lot of local conferences that aren't super expensive that you can go to. Even just going to user groups can be good. Yeah. Now, another thing that training does for you, if you're the instigator of this, is it has the side effect of revealing which employees are going to be the biggest problem in getting rid of your Dead Sea effect. Mm -hmm. You're going to get some initial resistance anyway because training is extra work but you should pay very careful attention to who is most receptive and who is most toxic to training because that dynamic is probably going to persist for the rest of this process. Mm -hmm. You do not fix the Dead Sea effect. You, your team, and your management fix the Dead Sea effect. You got to find out who's on your side. And this is a great way to do that. Yeah, because they'll show themselves. So speaking of fixing things, next, fix broken processes. Once you have started getting some training underway, the next thing is fixing those processes. Yeah, and training does wonders as a vector for improving processes. So you start training people and they start seeing the things that are broken and a lot of them will start fixing those things without you asking. Mm. And it's also easier to have a reasonable discussion about how to fix things when people understand what the fix actually is. This is also a good time to start recruiting your coworkers' input into how processes should be improved. Yeah, so let's talk about some things that usually can be fixed, and this will help snowball your improvements a little bit. The first one is source control practices, branching strategies, those kinds of things. Dead Sea organizations usually are pretty terrible about this, and you can get quick wins right there. Mm -hmm. Next is continuous deployment. Yeah, so I've worked at organizations that it took weeks to get a build out. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that down to, hey, I click a button, management is now paying attention. Yeah, we've been working on a build server that we've got a couple of our things on continuous deployment and we've been working on getting more on there and making that process faster and better for getting new projects on there or getting existing projects on to the build server. And it's just, once they saw how easy it was for us to, especially the dev team writes the code, builds, and when we push the code up 
to the master branch, or actually now it's uh, not even that. When we accept the pull request into the master branch, it builds and deploys and it does a, a build before it does anything else. So if it doesn't build, it won't take the code in. It is so sweet, y'all. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It's a great thing. I love working with a process like that versus what we did in the 90s and the early 2000s, which was like build it, FTP it somewhere, you know, do all the config by hand and then fix all the things you broke. Yep. It makes a difference. Another place you can make a difference is testing. So getting effective testing processes in place. This is stuff like Mm -hmm. maybe not so much unit tests, but maybe some light integration tests of some of the hot paths in the code that tend to break a lot or tend to have performance issues. Mm -hmm. Just getting some of those things under control will give you a lot more time. And it also gets management attention because now they can see a positive path forward. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned pull requests, but code reviews are another place to really get this, especially if you can throw in a little bit of pair programming and management isn't a big fan of pair programming. That's why you don't tell them. Yeah. Until they see the effects of it. Yeah. Or mob programming. I mean, I, <laughs> I've i been in that situation where you've done the mob thing and you've had like four people in a room and one guy's coding and everybody else is telling them what to do. And you get so much insight on how your team thinks. It's not so much about the productivity. You get a little bit of that too, but you can see how the other people on your team think in a way that you don't get until you've worked with their code for a long time. So definitely do that. Another thing to fix is the way that you come up with estimates. And try to tighten that up, you know, break things down where you actually know how long something's going to take. Yeah. To help with that, better specifications. The more you know about what you're building, the better you can be at saying how long it's going to take to build it, knowing what you need to do. And then finally, proper implementation of Agile, as opposed to what most people do. And I appreciate that you did not capitalize the A in Agile. Yeah, I like Agile when it's correctly implemented, but it has the same problems as libertarianism and communism in that people don't really think about the failure cases when it doesn't work and it's not implemented Mm -hmm. correctly. Like libertarianism especially works really well when it's the entire system. Yeah, when it's half of it. Yeah. It's worse than not doing it. And Agile is kind of that same boat. Yeah. Most organizations that are doing Agile today are doing it in a very, very bad way. And if you're in a Dead Sea organization, your odds are almost 100% that they're doing Agile wrong. Yeah. Or they're doing Waterfall wrong if it's Mm -hmm. a particularly Dead Sea. Well, they may be doing water fragile. Yeah, water fragile. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. So the next organizational way to mitigate the Dead Sea effect is to update technology. Once your processes are improved and you're making progress on training, now you can start to introduce technological improvements where they make sense. Right. And even though poor technology can often feel like the biggest pain point, especially to developers, it's a hard thing to sell without other improvements supporting it. You need more developer time. You need to be able to build things faster. And now you can get new tech in there because now you can actually afford the time that it costs to do that. You also don't want to be the only one pushing technological improvements because that's a lonely road that I walk alone. Yeah. And it's paved with politics get a really optimistic junior developer and convince them to do it if you're kind of a jerk or actually have the whole team and kind of talk about it and then start kind of pushing the idea towards management. But you don't ever, ever do that by yourself because you will tick off a lot of people. So you should also be really careful about the technology that you push. Yeah, don't push anything that you don't think your team can handle without more training than they're likely to get. Basically, doing this right will feel like sneaking new technology in rather than loudly announcing yourself. So what this reminds me of is myself and my youngest sister. So when we were growing up, I sort of did my own thing. I didn't really announce it to my parents unless I got caught and I went and bragged about it because I found if I told them about it, I wouldn't get in as much trouble. And the only way I was going to be able to tell them about it just personality-wise, was to brag. That explains a lot, actually. Yeah, that's some of my own personal issues. But my sister, on the other hand, she would just flaunt stuff in front of my parents because she was the baby and she got away with everything. 
So what you want to be is more like me than my sister in this case. Do your own thing. And then when they find out about it, they're like, all right, well, it's not hurting anybody. We'll just let you do it. Yeah. <laughs> the real goal here, though, is to get a critical mass of the team to adopt a new practice so that it can't easily be ripped out. You got to remember that the old way of doing things lasted as long as it did because a critical mass of the team was doing it. Follow that example. Mm -hmm. Now, I have had to do this on a few teams that I've been on. I worked on one team where what we were doing, we probably should have used Angular or Vue or React or some other framework. We couldn't do it with the team we had with the amount of training that we could get. But I could sneak knockout in there. And so that's what I did. And the reason you do that is because I can't train the team to use Angular in a lunch break. But I can teach them how to do knockout. And that was good enough to start getting some of the improvements that we needed. So I'm sure somebody has since looked back. In fact, I know they have. And said, why is there knockout in this project? It's like, well, it was either continue to do things in the old web forms, you know, massive view state, postback world, or we get clean Ajax and a little bit of data binding with knockout and we can actually produce things. So you sneak this stuff in and you can gradually get improvements that help the team. So the final thing we're going to talk about at the organizational level is improving feedback loops. With improved technology, better training, improved processes, it's now time to start revisiting some of the feedback loops that you have in place. Yeah, and this usually means a lot more extensive pair programming, testing, code reviews, those kind of things, because if you have incompetent developers and you're not aware of it, you probably need to get that way. Yeah. And so there's an organizational problem that kind of pushes this. No. And you probably by this point have already been doing some of this stuff anyway, but now you kind of want to ramp up on that and try to hit more of the sensitive areas of code and stuff that was written more recently. The idea is for early process improvements to give people time to fix their individual coding practices before they get embarrassed by them. Right. So you don't want to have like a full-on shaming of the code, you know, the first day of this thing, right? Like you want to be several months in and be like, okay, we've got some process improvements. Now let's talk about how to fix this stuff. First, by now, the personnel problems on your team are probably becoming rather apparent. Yeah. You will tick people off by doing this, especially if the personnel problems are management. Well, they may not be apparent to management. Yeah. The point of fixing feedback loops at this point is to start showing those problems to management without being a jerk, basically. Yeah. And this is especially true, by the way, if the problem is management, because most of the time they've got a hand in it. And it's very possible that some of your coworkers are in the wrong position. People change over the kind of time periods that cause the Dead Sea effect. Uh, good grief, they don't even have to be that long of a time period. I know some people who went from being junior developers to project managers. Yeah. Because that's what they wanted to do. Actually, you and I have a friend that has done that. I have other people that I know in the industry that have done similar things just because they got into it and they're like, hey, now that I'm in the industry, I see where I fit the best and this is where I want to go. Yeah. I mean, this is, I have to fight the temptation to go in and be a DBA. I can see that. Because I kind of like it a little bit and it's a little bit dangerous. And you don't find these things out a lot of times till things change and you're like, wow, that's really compelling. I should probably do that. Mm -hmm. You need to find the people that need to do that stuff and get them to where they can do yeah. it. Now, remember, it's not your job to get people fired. Yet. Yeah, hopefully it won't be. <laughs> it is your job to tighten management's feedback loop. So what you're doing here is you are showing the pain points to management. I know a few weeks back, I told a story about where another developer and I had been carrying this one team and we were just both stressed out, strung out. I think we were talking about burnout at the time and we were just done. We both had a conversation. We're like, you know what? I'd rather take the punishment of missing deadlines than deal with the stress of trying to hit them. Yeah. And what that did was it pointed out, hey, when we backed off, they saw where the actual problems were. Yeah. It's really easy as a developer, especially if you've got a good work ethic, to end up carrying your entire team and it is not worth it. Mm -hmm. So now that we've talked about the organizational level and how to mitigate Dead Sea Effect there, 
we're going to talk about mitigation from the individual level. And this builds on top of what you do at the organizational level. Yeah, and so like we talked about earlier, the first thing you need to do is reallocate responsibilities to strengths. So as feedback loops tighten, you start noticing that certain team members are especially strong in certain areas. They may not have had the opportunity to work in that area before because of the whole Dead Sea thing and people protecting their territory, but now they do. So let them leverage that strength. That will speed up the team and it will give you room to maneuver. Yeah. You may also notice that some people really start hating their role once things change. And I've seen this a lot with people that were kind of the team lead. And then suddenly they bring in like an agile improvement process and the person really can't do the things that they were doing before and they hate it and they don't want to be a team lead anymore. I can believe that. Yeah. Now these things may be above your pay grade. They probably are. Yeah. When describing how these tactics can help your team, try to figure out how your manager is evaluated by their manager. And if you can make your manager look good, things get much easier. Right. You need to learn how to do this if you want your pay grade to increase anyway so that you can actually fix these kind of problems yourself instead of manipulating other people. Basically, the deal is is help the person above you climb the ladder so that you can get to the next rung. Mm -hmm. Next is improve employee interactions and morale. Now that things are on a trajectory of improvement, you've done the organizational things and you've started working on the individual level, it's time to start ironing out whatever interactions are still bad between team members. Yeah, so like as previous issues get ironed out, you get a lot of interpersonal debt that comes up. So it's it's like a marriage where one person is an addict. Those marriages tend to go through their roughest patch after one member of that marriage recovers. Yeah. Things are starting to get on the mend. That's when stuff blows up. It's a weird dynamic, but the Dead Sea effect is kind of the same thing. That makes sense. It's an emotional addiction almost. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Back when I was doing addiction counseling, we worked with people going through stuff like that. And when you have one person that's used to being the complete caregiver and making all the decisions and basically treating the other one similar to having another child. Yeah. When that person starts recovering and they start taking an active role, it can be hard to give things up. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, as they start learning their boundaries and start getting healthier interactions, I mean, it's just a flashpoint. So you're going to see this kind of stuff happen on the team. Yeah. It's a lot easier to fix some of the deeply ingrained interpersonal interactions after there is a good reason to be positive. Before, you probably can't fix it. I've worked in places where there were people that constantly interrupted the rest of the team and constantly. They were constantly bringing up problems and constantly creating tension. And once the team is kind of on the mend, now you can actually talk to that person and go, hey, your interruptive reaction to things was appropriate for this previous environment where things caught on fire all the time. They don't catch on fire all the time now. And if we would like to keep it that way, this has to stop. Yeah. It's also a good time to start evaluating whether there are some larger structural problems that may still be causing friction. Now, a lot of this stuff is starting to get into management territory. But if you've pulled off the rest, you likely have some leverage here. Like we said, this is starting to deal with the individual level. So it's individual management, things like that, team lead sort of stuff. It's also a good time to start hitting up management about things like lunch and learns, team lunches, other ways to grow together. Being in a a mostly remote environment, one thing I do look forward to when I'm in the office is going out to lunch with the guys. Like uh, today, we went to Fleet Street, which is a British pub that uh, does a lunch time thing. It's like a $6 lunch, fish and chips and uh, soft drink for $6. That sounds awesome. I'd take two. Yeah, it is really good, man. You probably would eat two. (laughs) I would. I'd plan that. But yeah, I mean... You know, you're kind of lucky when you have a remote team because you look forward to going to lunch together as opposed to looking forward to going to lunch to get out of the office. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you're just going to want to start using this leverage. And your manager probably knows what's going on by this point, or they at least see the stuff that you're doing. Even if you're sneaky, they usually actually know a lot more than you think they do. It's a really good time at this point to get them to go to their manager with the improved results to see if you can get authorization from higher up 
for things like better pay, better training, more privileges, those kind of things, mm-hmm. right? Because now you've got improved situations that make that manager look good to their manager. Start leaning on them. No. So next, you want to realign evaluations to business objectives. When Will and I were talking about the outline before we recorded the episode, we were discussing how this kind of fits in both organizational and individual, but we decided to keep it in the individual area because it, in the process, this is where it would go. Now, at this point, you have effectively fixed the Dead Sea effect. However, now the hard part begins. You got to keep it from coming back. Yeah, and that's hard, right? As evidenced by how many people don't manage to keep the Dead Sea effect out of their organization in the first place. Mm-hmm. Your team's evaluations need to start being aligned to the strategic objectives of your organization. Now, that sounds like a whole bunch of buzzword bingo here, but basically the deal is if it's not bringing in cash, that's probably not what your team should be doing. Mm -hmm. And you'll see this a lot in organizations where they'll be like, well, we're going to write our own time system and our own job billing program and all this stuff just for our internal team of, you know, five people. And you got a developer who's chewing up their day doing this. Well, is it bringing in any money? No, but it's costing a lot. Those kind of things start getting really, really irritating and apparent at this point. And those need to be hammered out so that you don't get the Dead Sea effect again. Basically, if you've had the Dead Sea effect, it's guaranteed that your team wasn't evaluated based on how well they met objectives. Yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't be in that situation. Yeah. Also, if there was a mass exodus before, you want to make it harder for that to happen again. Yeah, if your team's improving things, especially cash flow, it's a lot harder for the bean counters to start justifying cuts. That doesn't mean that they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, always watch out for that single ply toilet paper in the bathroom because that's a bad sign. But it makes it harder to do that, especially if you're aligned to the source of cash flow. In other words, you're creating that. Now, part of this is better pay. You don't want your best people to leave because they can get a lot more elsewhere. You should have information that backs that up by now. Yeah, this is something that's really interesting is a lot of companies give raises that are below or just slightly above the reported rate of inflation that like the Congressional Budget Office puts out. Mm -hmm. And that rate has nothing to do with how much your living expenses increased. They leave out housing, they leave out education, they leave out food. It's like if you're buying pig iron, that's a great number. But I don't know anybody that eats pig iron to live. And so companies will do this and you want to get to the point where that cash flow, some of it is going into your department to keep those positive improvements going so that your best developers don't get a, you know, 3.2% pay raise after two years and decide, yeah, you know, I could get a 40% pay raise over here. Well, this is why in the industry, so many people bounce around jobs. Yeah, that's the main way I get a raise. Yeah. So we've reached the last point. That is to mitigate the Dead Sea effect, you have to remove problematic personnel. Right. And this is ugly, right? You don't want to start out by firing people. You also initially don't really know who the problem is. Yeah. That's why this is the very last point. Yeah. Because you don't have good intel. Yeah. At the end of this process, there may still be some people on the team who just can't perform or who won't perform, who refuse to move up. I've seen that. I've seen that where someone was like a year or two away from retirement and they just didn't care anymore. Yeah. And management was like, they were friends with them or they'd been there so long. They're like, you know what? Whatever. We're just going to let them get to retirement. We're going to push them off to these other areas because they tried to get them engaged and they just couldn't. Yeah. That's like one of my least favorite patterns too, is when you got somebody there that won't learn anything and they're friends with the owners. Yeah. It is extremely frustrating you know, when you get these developers who've been around for, you know, 20 years, the owner can't really fire them because, hey, they've participated in the Dead Sea effect and they don't have a time machine. What do you do with this joker? Because they're not going to learn anything new. And if you fire them, they're probably going to lose their house. Yeah. But you do have to get them off your team. They cannot be screwing up the productive people. Mercy towards people who actively harm the team is treason to everyone else. Yeah. And it's really ugly to say it that way. I really hate that. A lot. But the fact is, when the rest of the team is being drugged down and they're getting put into a position where you could have mass layoffs, 
you know, five or 10 other people getting screwed over because you won't deal with the problem child over here, that makes you a pretty bad person, frankly. Yeah. And the thing is, you want to do everything you can to mitigate this before it comes to this point. I mean, this is like a way out end point. Yeah. It's probably not even within a year of trying to get the Dead Sea effect fixed. Like it's going to take a while just to figure out where people fall. Mm -hmm. And as stuff shifts around, a lot of times you'll say, oh, this person, you know, I thought they were a Dead Sea developer, but really they're a really good project manager. Yeah. Or it may be like the person I was talking about who didn't realize she'd gotten into that funk because it was just the environment. And when they brought a manager in that started shaking things up, she at first was resistant to it as most people are because it's different, it's change, but then really took to it. Yeah. And sometimes people just take a while just to get their head on straight. You know, like it's not necessarily something that gets fixed in six months. If they've been there for 20 years and it's been terrible for 19 of those years, six months doesn't adjust the attitude. Right. Because they remember other times probably that it got better right before it got a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Now, more than likely, if evaluations are correctly aligned, processes are fixed and there are opportunities for improvement, the people who don't take them after sufficient opportunity, and like Will said, this is more than a year of time, aren't likely to ever do so. Yeah. And that's when you start looking at, all right, maybe even pull them in and have a talk with them or have management have a talk with them and say, look, you got to get your act together or we're going to have to let you go. And look at it and say, all right, are they getting their act together? Give them the opportunity. We're not saying just completely cut them off, but give them a chance to improve. And if they don't, eventually you do have to. Yeah. And the way I usually have done this is I'm like, hey, what do you think about the changes that have been happening? And just actually have a dialogue with them. Because a lot of times you'll see a hook in there that they like this one particular thing, they don't like this other thing. And you can kind of push them to something that keeps them from getting fired. Yeah, thankfully, a lot of times this happens organically. You shouldn't have to go to management to ask for it because they're going to have the right information in their hands to make the case. You know, I've seen this where an organization was making these changes, trying to get out of that dead sea. And... They had driven off their best developers. You got a manager in who was like, all right, I'm going to shake things up. And the first thing that manager did without trying was to drive off the people that wouldn't change. Yeah. He came in and just made all these changes. And those people that didn't like it, they left of their own accord. Yeah. And they're probably happier. I mean, that's the other thing too. Yeah, that's true. Firing is not necessarily bad. I've had some situations, not necessarily firing, but like getting downsized or, you know, it just wasn't a good fit anymore. Mm -hmm. And finances happened and you move on and it's actually better for you. Yeah. You're happier. You're getting paid more. You're in a better situation. You weren't happy there before and you interviewed saying, I'm not going back to that kind of crap. It's not as bad as it sounds like it is. No. Now, hopefully the person or people we're talking about can find another place in the organization that works for them, but they can't be allowed to continue the way they are. Something has to change. Yeah. You might like the person in question. However, it's really important to remember that if they can't do their job, they're still toast either way. You can't let them drag the rest of the team down with them. And I've run into people that were really depressed or they had some other stuff going on for years at a time. And, you know, you can't fix that in a company. No. It's unfortunate, but you kind of got to cut them loose. And if you're at this phase and starting to think that the person might be let go, it's good to start encouraging them to find something that suits them better. Maybe even help them, point them in the right direction. If you know someone that is still using that technology or know of a place that may still be there. Yeah. Or, you know, one thing I've seen, I've done this before too, is push them towards somebody that's trying to get rid of their own Dead Sea effect and they were starting at the same point. Because this person has been drug along further and doesn't realize it. And they'll go to the new place and go, wait, that's dysfunctional. And they'll completely rock it there <laughs> I can totally because they're see in the that. habit. Like it is so <laughs> weird. And you're like, dude, you could have just stayed here. I mean, I've seen that like five or six times in my career. Yeah. And it's always just kind of like you shake your head and you're like, did I just see that crap? I can totally see that because that makes perfect sense is it takes that, I don't say getting fired to get them to shake them up, but it takes that change to shake them up. And they have no sunk costs at the new place. Right. So guys, getting out of a Dead Sea situation is a major pain. It's difficult to do, takes a long time, and is fraught with political difficulties and hard decisions. However, 
if you want to keep your career going in a good direction for a long time, you may find yourself choosing between fixing the problem and moving on. Never forget that you can fix a dead sea by either changing your company or changing your company. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, in the line with the whole you know Dead Sea discussion, one thing I'm seeing a lot out of developers, and I've been seeing it for years, is a reluctance to consider second order and third order consequences of the stuff they do. It's really easy to get into trouble when you get really heads down and focused on the code and not realize what impact your code has out there. And I'm not talking about any kind of stuff like the Therac 25 or anything. Like, you're not going to irradiate people, probably, if you're listening to this podcast. If you are, totally tell us about it, because that'd be funny. Well, not really funny, but it'd be funny to hear about, you know, because I don't think we probably have anybody like that. But we might. But a lot of times, developers will do stuff, like, for instance, building up a really complex UI, because it's easy to get stuff into the database with that. But it's a burden on everybody who has to use that thing. And the developer didn't consider the second order consequence of it. What if that is a system that is required for some other process to work well? Now everybody hates that system. And the third order effect is this other process starts failing. What's the fourth order effect? Oh, it takes the whole company down. I feel like a lot of developers, and myself included, right? Like this is really easy to get into. We don't look and go, okay, if I screw this up and do something really dumb, what happens? As a developer, you have the capacity to kill or seriously injure more people than probably anybody else does and do it with plausible deniability by being stupid about second-order effects. For instance, there's a lot of suicides that are caused by bad finances. There are a lot of medical errors that are caused by bad software, probably. You know, either information isn't there, it was displayed wrong, you know, somebody didn't see it because the way the layout was, whatever. As an industry, I think it's probably about time that we started really looking at what software actually does out there versus just the code, because there's a bigger picture out there that is really easily missed. I just want to throw that out there because the Dead Sea effect is a prime example of that. The choice not to go to a newer technology 10 years ago is the reason you have the Dead Sea now, and you have to go through all this pain to fix it. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.